As you know, we've started a series on Daniel. We've done a few messages on Daniel 1, and I realized, by the way, I had an announcement. Let me just say this before I forget. Crew, college ministry. If you're, how many of you are college kids? A few college kids. Great, excellent. Uh, instead of meeting on Tuesday nights, we're going to be meeting on Thursday nights. Thursday night, 7 o'clock, Mc, Mc, McNamara uh, room in the Powell Center. Anything else you want to add, Brent? Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's, I shouldn't have asked. Yeah, we're very serious. We want to really uh, help out any, any college kids, college kids within our own church, college kids with uh, Alfred State, Alfred University. Uh, again, I say our own church because, you know, sometimes we f- maybe forget the most obvious. If you have a college student, maybe it's a grandchild, maybe it's your own son or daughter, please encourage them. 7 o'clock, Powell Center. We had a wonderful time, just a wonderful time last uh, last Thursday, 7 o'clock. So uh, we're looking forward to really meeting with and uh, encouraging and seeing uh, the kids grow as well as us as leaders. So uh, please encourage any, co- maybe a college kid that's down the road, a friend, you know, a neighbor, reach out to them, reach out to them. In fact, we need to get some uh, small uh, invites so that, you know, for new kids, but any college kids. Daniel. Again, chapter one, we've gone through, looked at Daniel's life. It wasn't prophetic. Most of it, just a few parts were prophetic, but but now we come to Daniel chapter 2. In fact, today we're not going to be in Daniel 2. Daniel 2 is one of the most profound uh, prophetic passages of all Scripture because it literally sweeps through uh, the times of the Gentiles from the point of Nebuchadnezzar overcoming Babylon right on through to the end, really, uh, to when Christ came. So again, all the different uh, history of the Gentiles, as it were. Um, but before we get into Daniel 2, I, I thought, you know, I'm going to set that aside for today. Because I think we need to answer even a more important question, and that is, why study prophecy? Why even study it? The reality is, uh, if we go through Daniel, and then a few weeks in the Olivet Discourse, uh, of course, Matthew 24 and 25, and then spend quite a bit of time in Revelations, that's a, that's a huge chunk of time. In fact, I would dare say that I don't think I'm going to end. Because I actually believe that the Lord will come before that. I don't, I don't really believe that I'm going to end that series. Now, I may, you know, 10 years from now, you may say, see, John, no. Uh, but I, before we even enter into this, let, let's just talk about, is it even important to study prophecy? Or is it unimportant? Is it secondary do you have to agree with us to become a member of our church? In other words, we have a, a statement of, of this is what we believe prophetically is going to happen. By the way, our church is pre-trib, pre-millennial. But you may say, but do you have to believe that to actually become a member? Actually, you know what? John MacArthur's church does a great thing uh, when it comes to how they bring in members. Their doctrinal statement says this. We teach. He doesn't say, it doesn't say this, we believe. 
And the reason is this. He says, you know what? Not everyone that, that comes to this church believes what our doctrinal statement says. Do you, get, do you see the difference there? It's a different thought of saying we teach. This is what we teach. But you know what? We are all on different growth continuums. We're all understanding Scripture. Uh, you know, we're all on different levels as far as what part of Scripture we understand. So let me say this. If you may not agree with, you may not be a pre-tribulationist, pre-millennialist. But again, you know what our church, we teach this. But again, you are welcome to come. You are welcome to become a member. We want to grow together. But some would say, well, you know, prophecy is quite divisive. It divides, it doesn't unify, you know, just controversial. Do you really want to go down this path? You know, what if you can't all agree? <laughs> well, again, I believe this, that prophecy is not <laughs> secondary. Again, the study of prophecy is not, in my mind, optional. Although I haven't done much of it. I mean, we've touched on it over, you know, certain books. Now, if you looked at history, church history, if you go back to the 1500s, 1600s, during the Reformation, you would say, but look at what John Calvin and Martin Luther, look at what they really focused on. They really didn't focus on prophecy. And that is true. I, I want to give you a little bit of background. When they were coming out of the Roman Catholic Church and defending the true faith against the Roman Catholic faith, which is a different faith, what they focused on was a couple major items. One was sola scriptura, which means that Scripture alone is the only, uh, is the only source of truth for the Christian. That's where the, the source of truth is found in Scripture. Is scripture. So when it came to the Reformers, they did a lot on the scriptures. And then the second major issue is, and how do you get saved? Is it by faith and works or is it just by faith? And again, the reformers focused primarily on who Christ was, what he did, and that salvation is by faith alone. Now, you may say, but see, you just proved, you just, you're, you're disproving your point. Now, I would say this. <clears throat> because, because salvation is, is the key issue... If a person doesn't understand that the Bible is the, is, is the sole source of true faith, truth, and if a person doesn't understand that Jesus Christ is the only Savior, and that we only become Christians not by our works but by our faith in Him, then that's the most important truth, right? I mean, let's not talk about the beast of Revelation. Let's get him to Christ. But having said that, let's not also then say, well, prophecy is of no importance, or even, don't even say this, that it's secondary. I would say this, prophecy is usually studied by the more mature. Now, what do I mean? Well, I mean this, get your other doctrines straight. <laughs> let's make sure we know that it's the Bible that gives us truth, it is Christ who gives us salvation, it's only through faith, and he puts us, therefore, into a church, we're not islands to ourselves, and, you know, as you start going through the major doctrines of who God is, and then there's a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one essence, three persons, and what he did in the world, and the doctrine of sin, and, the, and we've gone through a lot of this. See, as you mature in those doctrines, it's not that prophecy is secondary, but I do believe this, that it's one of the last doctrines usually in your life that gets totally developed. Very, very important. You'll see in a moment. It, the, the New Testament's uh, writers keep going back to prophecy, whether fulfilled or unfulfilled. But again, how does a person enter a saving relationship with God? It's by believing in Christ. 
Ephesians 2, for by grace you've been saved. What? Through faith. <laughs> Through faith. And that not of yourself. Not of yourself. Not of works. Unless anyone should boast. It's a, it's a free gift. Free gift. Salvation is a free gift. We receive it when we recognize that Jesus Christ came and died for our sins on the cross. And we receive him as Lord and Savior. And I'll say that again. As Lord and Savior. We are submitting to His Lordship when we receive Him. We are saying it is not by my righteousness, it's, by, it's what He did on the cross and His righteousness that I stand righteous before God the Father. So it's not by works, it's by faith, faith in Him. So let's get that straight. But again, let's not throw prophecy. I, I, I seem to hear people saying, well, prophecy is not important. It's so divisive. It, it's controversial. You know, it's so hard. Can you really get to the truth? I believe you can definitely understand what prophecy I definitely believe that you can come to a, an understanding of what the Scripture says. If you look at Scripture with a literal, normal, grammatical approach. And we'll see that in a few weeks from now. But if you look at Scripture and say, well, there's whole portions of Scripture that you just have to use symbolism, and that's the only way you can interpret it, then literally it's just your interpretation. It's like a crapshoot. Just like whatever you think you can just put down on paper, and that's the truth. But if you go to this book and you say, no, I, I'm going to read this book like I would read any other book, and, it's, and if, when there's a literal interpretation, I'm going to accept it. Now, again, we know that in literal interpretation, even when you read something, there is symbolism. I mean, you read about symbolism. When Jesus said, I am the door, he didn't say, I'm the swinging thing. He says, I am the entrance, right? We understand that. That's a literal interpretation. So, again... A true believer that studies prophecy, it should mature them. I'll remind you, 2 Timothy 2 says, be diligent. This is what he says, be diligent to what? Quote, rightly divide the word of truth. We should, we should be precise in, our, in, in dividing and in, in exegeting the word of truth. And that would have to include prophecy as well. Again, don't avoid prophecy because Revelation says this. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. Can you imagine somebody saying, I don't want to study Revelation because it's too divisive? Jesus just said, you're going to be blessed if you read it and obey it. In fact, in the end of the book of Revelation 22, he says the same thing. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. We get a blessing by reading and then, more importantly, obeying what it says. We're going to be looking at how we obey prophecy. How does it change our life? Now, just think about what prophecy is, the foretelling of the future. Who could do that but God himself? Nobody else could do that. As far as who can foretell, and then he writes it down. Isaiah 46 says, Remember the former things of old, 46.9. For I am... Now, see what God says. For I am God and there is no other. Only God could write down what's going to happen in the future. I am God and there is no other. 46 verse 9. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. Well, the end. End from the beginning. From the ancient times that are not yet done saying... Wait, excuse me. From the ancient times, things that are not yet done. So in other words, way back then, I've told you what's going to happen. Things that aren't even done yet. 
saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east. By the way, when, uh, Armageddon, he calls vultures to consume the bodies. I'm even going to call, you know, I, I'm even over nature, God says. I'm over nature. I'm over the animals. But then he also says this. The, then he says, The man who executes my counsel from a far country. That's Isaiah writing around 700, and I think it was 80 B.C., And he is talking about Cyrus in that passage. That passage is talking about King Cyrus, who 140 years later is going to tell the Israelites that are in the Babylonian captivity, you can go home. See, that's what God is saying. That's the man he's talking about there. I'm going to call a man from the east, and he's going to do my bidding for me. By the way, are men even to this day doing God's bidding? Even the election we're going through, is this going through God's bidding? Are we moving towards history just randomly, or is this God's bidding? As you study prophecy, you should be more and more confident. Oh, I see, God is just executing his plan. We're just part of it. So he calls the birds, he calls that man, the man who executes my counsel. Indeed, I have spoken it. I also will bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. I don't know if you, I left this passage in your notes, but Isaiah 46, 9 through 11 is just a huge passage that says this, God's in control. God is in control. He told us in the ancient of days what was going to happen in the future, and he's now executing and he does all his purposes. That's why we need to study Prophecy it, under, it helps us understand and have even a greater confidence in God. So prophecy is not trivial. In fact, as Paul talks to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, verse 27, Paul says this to them. Now this is when Paul is leaving Ephesus. He's crying. There's tears of joy. He's been with them. Paul has been ministering to the church. He's been ministering to these elders. But he's leaving, he's not coming back, but he says this of the, he says, I, talking to the elders, but then talking about the whole church, he said, for I have not shunned to declare to you, quote, the whole counsel of God. Paul didn't say this, you know, I told you about Jesus, I told you about salvation, I told you about the church, you know, the practical things. I left out all the prophecy, I mean, it's only a quarter of scripture, but you know, no, I told you of the whole counsel. Do you think Paul was preaching about the second coming to the, the Corinthians there? I mean, to the Ephesians? And to, by the way, all the churches he went to? Yeah, yeah. How do I know that? Well, because he's, he actually writes it in the books. The whole council. So prophecy is not some secondary truth. Rather, it is the doctrine, again, that usually is developed in a, ber- a person's life. I would say this. It needs to be developed as you mature. If a person gets saved, the first thing I would do is not take them to, let's talk about Revelation. But as that person matures, then I would say, you know what? No, you're going to, more of, I guess I would say this way, the meat of the word. Well, let's look at a second question for time's sake. It's not secondary. Question number two, and then we're ending with this, but this one's a little bit longer, okay? Why should Christians study the prophetic scriptures? Why should we study it? Just, I'm just trying to answer the why. I'm answering again the why because as we go through the book of Daniel, as we go through Olivet Discourse, that was Jesus' teaching on uh, 
future events. As we go through revelations, again, Christ through John, the Apostle John, I want you to be absolutely saying, man, yeah, we need to do this. It might be difficult. By the way, it's of no private interpretation. That was the opening passage. The idea there is this. We shouldn't be just like uh, fast and loose with the Scriptures. We need to be precise. We need to be able to say, okay, let's put to practice the principles of hermeneutics, the principles of studying Scripture, and let's look at the the, uh, prophecies, and we should be able to come up with, okay, this is what the author meant when he wrote it. And this is what the Holy Spirit meant when he moved upon men. So, why should Christians study prophetic scriptures? Number one, or A, biblical or scriptural content. I I gave you a lot. I think I gave you nine blanks today. Is that too many blanks for you? Oh. (laughs) I looked at it and I said, should I fill some in? I said, nah, they can do it. The content, scriptural content. In other words, scripture is packed with prophetic material. Again, at least a fourth. All right, let me just, this is MacArthur with study notes, but let's just take a fourth. At least a fourth of the Bible is prophetic. Either when it was written or still is. In other words, there are some prophecies. I mean, you take the uh, minor prophets, and some of that was written to Judah and Israel, things that were going to happen, and now it's already happened. But I'm saying a quarter of the Bible is prophetic. So the sheer content of it would say, you know what, we need to study prophecy. Otherwise, we're missing a quarter of Scripture. Actually, the, uh, Richard Mayhew came up with the actual verses. He says in the Bible, 27% or 8,352 of all the verses refer to prophetic issues. 8,352. Wow, just a lot. 27%. In fact, another interesting statistic. In Scripture, 62 out of the 66 books have some references to uh, prophecy. There's only a few books that have nothing to do with prophecy at all, one of which would be uh, Philemon, 3 John. Ruth, but then Ruth, kinsman redeemer, which you then see uh, a type of Christ. So, I mean, even that, I mean, is Song of Solomon that has... No prophetic. Now, let me throw out one other interesting tidbit. In God's word, of the of the amount of uh, prophets uh, prophecies, the twenty seven percent, eight thousand three hundred and fifty two verses, twenty two percent of those have to do. Now, catch this: of the of of the Lord's return, the second coming. See, the second coming is huge in Scripture. You see it all over the place. Now, when I say second coming, remember, the first coming of Christ was when? Baby in the manger, right? First coming. He leaves olive, or he leaves off the Mount of Olives. He's going to be coming back, Acts 1. By the way, I absolutely believe he is coming back, but the first time it's going to be called the rapture. He never sets foot back on the Mount of Olives at that moment. That is not the second coming. The second coming is when he actually sets down at the end of the tribulation. Now, I say that because when I'm saying second coming, don't think rapture. I'm talking about the second coming. When Christ returns to this earth to judge it and to set up his kingdom. I say to judge it in the tribulation, all the things have happened, but he, he has to destroy the final um, 
army. And then he sets up a thousand-year reign. So 22% of all the prophecies out there have to do with his second return. I mean, just a huge amount. You see it throughout all the New Testament books, I think, except for three. So just the biblical content alone would say, man, we need to be serious about prophecy. The number, number, second one is this, the commands, the scriptural commands. In other words, like I, wrote, I told you before, 2 Timothy 2.15 says, this is our favorite Awana. How many of you remember Awana? <laughs> Do you have a little tear in your eye? <laughs> yeah, I loved Awana. That was great. I mean, I, my kids grew up. By the way, I'll say this because I believe this. I believe we even have a better program than Awana. Oh, does that sound like heresy? <laughs> now, I, I believe Awana is very, very good, but I'll tell you what, we've taken a lot. In fact, the verses that we're using this year in Olympian program is uh, actually based off of the Awana verses. But again, new and improved, and uh, Cody and Lori have done a wonderful job of putting that together. I want you, if you have a young child, I want you to see this, the material that they have for the uh, fourth, four-year-olds to sixth grade. Because it is very, very, very good. It is very good. In fact, I wish I had that when I was their age. You know, the little guys. But again, how did I get off on this? Oh, the one of be diligent. That was not planned in my notes. But the point is, it says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God. That was the key verse for Awana. Uh, approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And that word diligent is in the imperative. Be diligent, make haste, exert yourself. And he says scripture. In other words, that's the command. And you find the command other places like Matthew 28. Go therefore make disciples with the second part of that. Teaching them to observe all things. Participle with a command. I mean, teaching them all things, not some things, all things. So again... Scripture doesn't leave us off the hook and say, well, just deal with the other doctrines. Don't worry about the last times. And you see that over and over again, the whole counsel of God, like I said before. And of the approximately 33%, uh, excuse me, 333 specific biblical prophecies dealing with Christ's two advents, first coming, second coming, a third of it deals with his first coming. Again, two-thirds about his second coming. You start adding this all up, and his second coming is the whole, you know, is the whole focus of history. At the time when the times of the Gentiles are done, and he sets up the Davidic kingdom. Sits on David's throne. So, the content of Scripture, the commands of Scripture... Now let me give you a couple dangers as we are entering this whole idea of studying prophecy. The first one is this. We study prophecy. Now again, we're told to study prophecy, but sometimes we have the wrong motivation. All right, so I'm told to study prophecy. I'm told to know, you know, be diligent to, uh, to rightly divide the entire word of God. Well, I'll go into it. Okay, that's a good thing. I'll take that command. But you go in it, in it with an attitude of Curiosity. Curiosity. You know, we just we just want to see what it says, you know, about the you know, the two beasts of Revelation chapter thirteen, or you know, who's the great whore and all that. No, no. We need to go in it with an attitude of transformation. Again, very familiar verse, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for 
Right? Doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. But what did he say? All Scripture. What is doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction? That is transformation right there. Scripture was given to transform our lives. So it's not for curiosity. In fact, William Graham Scroggy, an old... Well, I think he lived around the last century and a half ago. But anyways, he said this. I thought this was very insightful. Now, I want you to hear what he says. He says, An interest in prophecy which is merely speculative and sensational... All right, so you just study Scripture because it's speculative and sensational comes perilously, perilously, with peril, perilously close to being sinful. Ooh. Yeah, just speculation. Yeah, just tell me what the, you know, the beasts are and what are the bold judgments and what are the trumpet judgments, what are the scroll judgments, you know, what are, what are the judgments? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If we just do it, yeah, yeah, curiosity... Boy, we're coming very close of yet not entered into being sinful. Why? Because Scripture was given for doctrine, reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. No, no, we come to the Word of God saying, transform our lives. Let me give you a couple other quick, just quickly, dangers of studying prophecy. It's what Charles Ryrie called the spirit of anthinianism. Remember the the people of Athens. In Acts 17, it says this, For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear, quote, some new thing. Oh yeah, I want to do it just to hear some new thing. Again, that plays off the heels of curiosity. By the way, when we just come without a contrite heart, a broken heart. Lord, transform me. Transform me. If we don't come with that type of an attitude and we hear some new thing, you know what that might produce in your heart? What does that produce? Pride. Arrogance. Look at what I know. You ever hear, you ever, have you ever been around someone that knows a lot of prophecy but is totally arrogant? Now let's not name any names. See, you get haughty, you get, really, you can even get cantankerous and rude. No, and then, then, see, then you have pride, so you go from curiosity to some new thing, and now, and then you start hearing things like this. You have to break fellowship with people who don't believe the same way you do about the tribulation view. Whether you're pre, mid, pre-wrath or post-tribulation. Well, you know what? Are we part of a family here? Then let's, let's make sure we respond to each other as a family. And let's not argue over things. Let's first of all make sure we have a basis for even saying what we say. In other words, it's here in Scripture. But again, we need to love one another. See, we don't want to become haughty over our position. We don't want to scorn other people because they don't hold to our position. By the way, it was Jesus was scornful at certain people, but it was the self-righteous Pharisees. But if you are one who believe that you were you are bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ, he became your substitutionary atonement on the cross, 
then we are family and we need to treat each other like brothers and sisters. Well, maybe I shouldn't say that. We need to even treat ourselves better than that. Sometimes <laughs> your own faith. <laughs> we need to love each other like Christ loves us. So let's watch the dangers. Third, major reason, not only the content, not only because it's commanded, but thirdly, because of the consequences. What happens when I study Scripture? Well, number one, understanding fulfilled prophecy inspires confidence in the Scriptures. In other words, you see it being fulfilled, it inspires confidence. Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4 is a pretty interesting passage. It's where... Peter and John, they heal, they get arrested, they're told not to preach. I find it interesting, Acts 4.13, it says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they were bold. But after they were released, that's verse 23, Acts 4.23, they were released but told not to speak anymore. Verse 20 says, For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Why? Because they were told not to. Verse 23, And being let go, they went to their own companions, Peter and John, and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard it, the people they went to, they raised their voices to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David said, and basically the rest of that verse in verse 26 is a quote from Psalms 2. What did they just do? They went back to prophecy and said, listen, we see your hand. It says, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. They go back to, against, uh, back to prophecy of, of uh, Psalms 2. What were they showing there? They had confidence in what the scripture says. Hey, look, at, we can see exactly how you planned this. As we know prophecy, as we see some of it already has fulfilled most of it, or a lot of it has. And as now we know also that the future is, is set, and that will also be fulfilled, and we have confidence in what the Word of God says. Not only confidence, but look at verse 29. And with all boldness they may speak your word, talking about the, Peter and John. But then look at verse 31. And they prayed, and the place where they assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled, and they, group, spoke the Word of God with boldness. What did it do? They went back. They saw how God was working. Peter and John became even more bold, and the whole congregation became bold. Prophecy should create boldness and confidence in us. Not only that, but we see courage. That's number two. Understanding prophecy produces courage in the person. Uh, Stability. How can anyone keep his composure in a world like ours, I ask you? When things are literally crumbling all around us and skyrocketing dead and you got these madmen with nuclear bombs and you know you have famine and earthquakes and you have how can you keep your composure? <laughs> well, really only because we know that God is in control. I say composure or courage. I mean, you get the point. Scripture gives you stability. In fact, in James chapter five Verse 8, you don't have to turn there, but it says this. Talking to, again, James wrote to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. 
Verse 7 says this, Therefore be patient, brethren. Be patient. And verse 8 says, You also be patient. Patient, he repeats. And says this, Establish your hearts for the... Catch this. The coming of the Lord is at hand. He's talking about the second coming. The coming of the Lord is at hand. Establish your hearts. And you say, Well, what is that word establish? It means to make stable, set fast. It's an imperative. James looks at them eye to eye, as it were, and says, listen, because the Lord's coming back, you establish your hearts. Don't you be up and down? Why would you be up and down? You're in the plan of God. I need to hear that. John Prince needs to hear that. It's a call to resoluteness, to firm courage, to commitment. So it establishes us. Number three, so we have the confidence in Scripture, the courage or composure in the person. Number three, understanding prophecy is a source of comfort in the face of sorrow. Comfort, hope, encouragement. By the way, these are all C's. Comfort. Confidence, courage, comfort, composure. Now we're only number three. But anyways, comfort, what believer hasn't stood in front of an open grave without thinking of the certainty of the resurrection of the body? I mean, how much more comfort? Or, who when misunderstood or wronged has not thought ahead, of the ahead to the time when the Lord, as it says in 1 Corinthians 4, which we looked at a few weeks ago, says this, who will bring to light, the Lord will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart then each one's praise will come from God. Yeah, I mean, yes, the Lord is coming back. And whether it's the person that we have laid in the grave and he's a believer and he will receive a new body, he's already with the Lord. In fact, if you try to get him back, he'd say, no, I'm not coming back. I'm in the presence of Christ. What are you, crazy? <laughs> or if it's someone that maligns you or someone that has hurt you, now, the Lord knows. The Lord, will, the Lord will do what is right. He will judge righteously. So there's hope. That's why in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul declares that the dead in Christ shall rise first, that at the rapture, that's the rapture, at the rapture when Jesus doesn't actually set foot down on the Mount of Olives, but just rescues his, his believers... And that's when we get our glorified bodies. And it's that time that we should get comfort. The last verse of that passage says this, referring to the rapture, therefore comfort one another with these words. By the way, we take these things so for granted, if you're a Christian of any length of time. In that day and age, first century, that whole time frame, you know what the Greek and Roman thinking was about death? This is how they thought of it. They looked at death as, these are literal quotes, bitterness. By the way, is it bitter when you see someone pass on to be with the Lord? I mean, there's a, a sense of loss and grieving. But all they saw in death was just total bitterness. Ruinous. It's the, quote, the eternal chamber of those who have withered. Etern just hopeless, helpless. And yet the prophetic word comes along and says, you know what, that's not the end. That's not the end. In fact, for that believer, in one sense, that's the beginning. They're in the presence of the Lord. And not only that, when Jesus comes back, he's going to rescue the dead in Christ for, will receive their bodies first, and then those who are alive will receive a body and will be with the Lord forever and all the glories. And man, that just gives comfort upon comfort and hope upon hope. 
And in a world that just was hopeless after the last breath as we are in this world, we need to go back to prophecy and say, look at what Jesus is going to do for those who are believers in him. So, comfort. Number four, understanding prophecy produces conviction. Conviction. What do you mean? Well, conviction to the unbelievers. There's one verse in John 16. Talking about the Holy Spirit. Jesus says he's going to come. The Holy Spirit's going to come. Again, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit's going to come. And when he does, he is he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Key word, judgment. He, he's going to convict the world of judgment. And then verse 11, a few verses later, he uses the same word, judgment, and he says this, and of judgment because the ruler of this world, which is Satan, is judged. Now, what has he just done? The Holy Spirit is going to come and convict the world of judgment. What do you mean? Well, just like he is going to condemn Satan, i.e. this, tell your unsaved friends that even Satan, the most powerful of the angels, is going to be judged by Christ and has been. Now, if he can't get away with judgment, if he can't skirt it, how can you? That's what is. That's that's why he's bringing that up as part of the point. If Satan, who cannot get away from the judgment of Christ, then how can you, as an unbeliever? In other words, receive Christ, be forgiven by the sacrifice of his his blood, and what he's done on the cross. So, it should bring conviction. We should be talking. I mean, hell's not a good term anymore, right? Nobody wants to talk about hell. Hell has vanished, and I think one guy wrote, hell vanished and nobody even realized it. In other words, you just don't hear about it anymore. Actually, I don't speak much on hell. I need to, again, as a person does not believe in Jesus Christ and they die, they go to, well, they ultimately go to hell, which is the second death. Actually, for right now, it's Hades. In other words, Hades is like county jail. (laughs) Hell, is final judgment, is like state penitentiary. Number five, understanding prophecy should bring cleansing. Cleansing. First John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, now we are the children of God. We're the children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. We haven't, we haven't arrived yet. <laughs> Isn't that great? How many of you have aches and pains? How many of you are really frustrated this last way? Well, you're not going to want to raise your hand. Because you were battling against sin, but you actually capitulated. In other words, we're not perfect physically. We're not perfect spiritually. Yes, we are totally redeemed in the sense of our uh, salvation justified. That part of it but there's still glorification. So he says, you know, not what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him, everyone that has this hope of Christ being revealed, and we see in Christ, everyone that has that hope in him, purifies himself. He didn't say will be purified. He's saying purified right now. As we see Jesus coming right now, purifies himself just as he is pure. 
So rather than saying, well, the Lord's coming back, and since I'm already redeemed and I'm justified, I'm just going to live life as I please, eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. Well, no, that would be totally opposite. No, because Jesus is coming back. He is alive. He was resurrected. There is a judgment day coming. I am going to be focused on him. And rather than being concerned of the things of the affairs of this world, focused on him. And finally, cleansing. And then finally, the last one is consistency. Knowledge of the future should breed consistency throughout one's life. We should be consistent. We need to be consistent. See, it encourages us to be patient. That passage in James, I'll go back there, because it says this, James 5, verse 7, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Be patient. That word patient is actually a different word from James chapter 1, um, where it says, uh, Count all my joy, my brother, when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. That, that word there is hupomone. It means standing under, and he refers primarily to this, circumstance. James 1 is primarily the word patience is circumstance. Endure under hard circumstances. This word is macrothumia, which is this, people. (laughs) By the way, who causes the circumstances normally? People. But here the focus is people. Therefore, be patient. What? With people, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Be patient. Macro means run. Be passionate. uh, Be long-term passionate. Don't lose heart. Don't, don't get discouraged and then, and stop running the Christian race because of the evil people around you. The hard people around you. Verse 8. Second time he says the same thing. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. He goes right back to the second coming. The, the, the coming is at hand. Be patient. How many of you have hard people? Could you name them? No. What is this point? Prophecy, second coming, creates consistency through one's life. It creates endurance. It creates the ability to be able to run with people, to love people, even to love, as Jesus said, your enemies. By the way, as we come to the table, you've got to ask yourself, are there hurts in your life where you're not loving people anymore? And not only that, Not only does it give you willingness to suffer, but also service. I think this is Donna Ryan's, one of her favorite verses, I think. After 1 Corinthians 15, he'd just been talking about the the rapture. How we'll be changed in a twinkling of an eye. We're gone. He says this, Therefore, Therefore, based on that reality of the, of the rapture, be, my beloved brethren, be what? Steadfast, immovable, catch this, always abounding, always abounding, that's the key point there, always exceeding, the word abounding means always overflowing in the work of the Lord. Knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. But he just said, be very steadfast and immovable. Always abound, always overflowing for service. Why? Because your work is not invading the Lord. Why? Because I just told you he's coming back. 
I just told you that you're going to be raptured. I just told you you're going to be changed. What you have right now is not the worst. I mean, it's not the best you'll ever have. It's actually the worst you'll ever have. Right? Isn't that true? Isn't this, on this earth the worst you'll ever have? Because from this point on, it gets better. Oh, yes, you might have to die. Some of us won't. Maybe many of us won't. But again, we're seeing the Lord. And because of that, keep steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Always, let's, let's work hard. I think of different places you can work hard at. It might be a program that our church has. Olympian or crew. Maybe you haven't even signed up yet. Epic, Sunday school, junior church, toddler time, music, preaching sometime. I don't know what it is, but the point is this. Don't give up. But it doesn't have to be within our church. It might be a new ministry, like I've said before. It might be something like a prison ministry or a nursery home. There are people that need you, right? But it might even be something else. It might be the ministry of ministering to your neighbor who needs Christ. And you've, quite honestly, after the last 15 years, just given up on the guy. And you need to start ministering and always abounding in the work of the Lord and be praying and be looking and be watching. And Lord, show me an opportunity. Lord, open an opportunity I need to share with him. Don't give up. Christ is on the throne. Christ is the King of Kings and he's coming back. And as we know that, we want to go before him now and partake in communion together. Again, as we approach the communion table, I thought about this. This is only for one type of person. Sinners. If, by the way, you think that you make it on your own by your own righteousness, this is not for you. This is for people who realize they are sinners and receive Christ as their Savior but also for people not only who knew there are sinners, but at this very moment realize there are still sinners, but that their hearts are pure before the Lord. Right? That's why he keeps telling us to come back. He's saying this, I am sufficient. My work is sufficient for you. I want you to keep remembering this. I'm not preaching the message here today because I was perfect this last week. I've had to confess my sins. I'm able to be here only because I stand in the righteousness of Christ. And so do you, right? So if you're on that boat, if you're in that boat and you say, yes, I'm a sinner saved by grace and I'm walking with him right now, then the Bible would say that you are worthy because you have gone and confessed to him. If you haven't confessed, it says to confess. Confess your sins before him. Do not partake of the Lord's table unless you are pure before him, unless you have confessed your sin, because otherwise, judgment will be on you. Even to the point, as it says in Scripture, that some even died. They actually slept. They actually were judged by God because they took it in a very haphazardly way. Ah, the Lord doesn't see. Yes, he does. So let's go before the Lord and ushers come forward and make sure that you are definitely walking with him. If he brings something to your mind, 